Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all, king, all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, I said. They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hello, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our one o'clock service. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, we just finished a series uh, on the church, and we thought that we would do another series to sort of piggyback off of that called Liturgy, Why We Worship uh, the Way That We Do. And the reason why we're doing this sermon series is because I believe that the most, not one of the most, but I believe that the most important habit of the Christian life is our weekly Sunday service. Now, in our case, we just meet a little over one hour a week. And so I feel like for us, it is imperative to understand what it is we do, but not only understand what it is we do during this one hour, but equally to understand why it is we do what we do. And so whether you go to a church with a denomination or without a denomination, a church that's conservative or a church that's contemporary, every church has a structure or what we would call a liturgy. Now, what do we mean by liturgy? Well, if you turn on the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you something from Daniel Hyde, and he does a good job of describing what a liturgy is. And Hyde says, a liturgy is simply an order of the acts of worship. Every church, therefore, uses a liturgy. It's not something only dead churches stuck in traditionalism use, but something that happens in every worship service in the world, whether or not a particular congregation has a more structured or loose service, and whether or not its liturgy is printed and followed. Even churches that told me we just want to worship the Lord in the spirit followed a predictable pattern the praise team had planned ahead of time. And so what Hyde is saying is that every church has some kind of liturgy or an order to their service. And in our case, we just finished over half of our liturgy. We had our call to worship, we sung some songs, we recited a creed, we confessed our sins, and now we're hearing the preaching of God's word. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to take a look at every element of our worship service. We're going to talk about what it is we do when we gather and then secondly, we're going to talk about why it is we do what we do. And so today we're going to begin with our call to worship. And I want to think about three things. What is a call to worship? Uh, why do we do the call to worship? And how do we participate in the call to worship? And so take a look with me at verses 1, 2, and 6. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. 
Three times in verse 1, 2, and 6, the word come is used. And so in other words, the psalmist is inviting us to come and do what? Worship God. And so the call to worship is very simply an invitation for us to come and worship. Now, it wasn't that long ago that churches used to have church bells, and the churches would ring the bells to let everyone know in the community that the worship service was about to start, and therefore, come and worship. Now, we don't have bells in our uh, building here, uh, but what we do have are the psalms. And when we recite the psalms, it's inviting you to come and worship God. Now, when it comes to invitations, wedding invitations, birthday, baby showers, whatever, you can do three things with an invitation. You can either accept it, reject it, or ignore it. But I do want you to know that if you do not accept the invitation to come and worship God, it doesn't mean that you will not worship something else. It actually means that you will accept an invitation if you don't worship God to come and worship something else. And I think one of the best examples of this in the Bible is a story of the golden calf. Now, even if you haven't read the Bible before, chances are you sort of know or have heard of this golden calf. And we know based upon the book of Exodus that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for around 400 years. God delivers them out of slavery. They cross miraculously through the Red Sea into the promised land. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, but because he's gone for a period of time, the people get restless. And so as a result, they ask Aaron to make a golden calf. And so he makes this golden calf, and if you read the story very, very carefully, it's not just any random golden calf, but they made the golden calf and they worship it, and they attribute to the golden calf what they used to attribute to God. In other words, this golden calf is the one that helped them out of Egypt. This golden calf is the one that delivered them uh, through the Red Sea. This golden calf is what helped them get to the promised land. Now, as modern people, when we read that story, we think, why would you make a cow and worship it? How silly is that? Right? But you know, the point of the story isn't, oh, how silly is this sort of activity and how stupid are these people? That's not the point of the story. You know what the point of the story of the golden calf is? The point of this story is the hunger and the craving that we all have to worship something. That's the point of the story. We are by nature worshiping creatures. And even when I say we are by nature worshiping creatures, that's far too weak of a statement. We're not only worshiping creatures, but we cannot not worship. We are compelled instinctively to bow down uh, towards something. G.K. Chesterton, the uh, English writer, once said that if you cease to worship God, you do not worship nothing, but you worship anything. Paul Tillich, another philosopher, said that anything that you're living for is really your ultimate concern. And your ultimate concern is usually your idol or the thing that you serve or worship. Now, you might not call it an idol, but functionally, the way that you live, your ultimate concern, whether it's your family, your kids, your parents, that thing the way that you're living really is your idol. Uh, and so we all have it. And so Tillich would argue that really there is no such thing as real atheism because we are by nature worshiping creatures and we cannot help do that. And when you take a look at the Bible, what the Bible would say is that if you worship anything other than God, what you're really bound down toward is an idol. Now, what is an idol? If you take a look at the first page, I really like what Norm McDonald, uh, Nicholas McDonald has to say because idols are not just golden statues. They are far more sophisticated and camouflaged 
than just that. And McDonald says, hello, I am an idol. Don't be afraid. It's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I am never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now, uh, you tell me. And we all have idols. And an idol is basically anything that you're looking to, to and, and you say to it, come and save me, rescue me, because without you, I'm nothing. And so we, we all look to things to garner a sense of significance, validation, and worth. Another way of thinking about idols is whatever you fear. Your fears point to what you worship. So for example, if you fear being lonely for the rest of your life, you know what your idol is? It's marriage. That's what you, that's what you worship. That's what you want to save you. you. You do know that if you look to someone to do that for you, uh, you're going to be crushed because no one can, wear, no one can be that high on a pedestal. If you fear uh, a life of mediocrity or a life of insignificance, you know what you're going to worship? Your accolades, your resume, your accomplishments, and you're going to be living a very, very driven life. Our fears point to uh, whatever it is uh, that we worship. Uh, another example of this is Harry Potter. Now, I might be the only person in this room that's never read or seen a Harry Potter book or movie, and I apologize for that. So I'm not a Harry Potter scholar, so don't... Uh, critique me if I pronounce the names wrong or anything like that, but I do know that in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, there's this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. And Erised is simply the word desire spelled backwards. And little Harry comes in front of the Mirror of Erised and he sits like a skeet self and looks in the mirror and what does he see? His desires. And he sees uh, an image, a reflection of his mom and dad. And from my understanding, uh, his mom and dad were martyred by Vol Voldemort. And uh, I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> Voldemort. And uh, uh, so he, he's been an orphan his whole life. And, and so seemingly every day, little Harry comes and sits in front of this mirror to, to see what it would like, what, what it would be like to be with his parents. And so understanding the power that this mirror has, Harry invites his friend Ron to come, and Ron comes, and he looks in front of the mirror of Erised, and he sees his desires. And what is his desire? His desire is to be older, good-looking, and captain of the Quidditch team, whatever that is, riding on some kind of broomstick or something like that, but I'm assuming it's the equivalent of being captain of the football team or something like that, and, and that's his desire. And uh, so little Harry keeps coming day after day, and um, Dumbledore, who I think is a Gandalf figure, comes and, am I right? 
Am I wrong? I don't know. He's a wizard, and he comes. They look the same, and he comes, and, and he comes, and he says, Harry, uh, this mirror neither shows you knowledge or truth. Many men have wasted away looking in this mirror. And I think what the wise Dumbledore and I think what the Bible is trying to say is that our desires are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, your desires really point to good things like parents, uh, being successful. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. But oftentimes when we desire certain good things, what we, what we, you know what we end up inevitably doing? We make these good things God things. And these good things were never meant to be God things. They were never meant to be your savior. Marriage was never meant to be your savior. Your job, never meant to be your savior. Your kids, no way they can be your savior. But we make these good things and we elevate it up to, to, to rescue us, uh, the damsels that are in distress. And so if you were to take a look at the mirror of Erised, if you were to sit down and look at the mirror, what do you think you would see? What are your desires? What are your functional idols? What is it that you're looking to? The call to worship reminds us that there is only one person that is worthy of our worship, and there is only one person that can truly save and rescue us, and that is God himself. Now, here's the question. Why is it that we worship God then? Look, take a look with me at verse 3 to 7. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And what verse 3 to 7 is basically saying is that God is our creator, and he is our maker. And out of the overflow of the love between the triune uh, uh, Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, out of the overflow of the triune God, God makes us so that he can have a meaningful relationship with us and us with him. Just like my wife Hannah, when we had kids, out of the overflow of our love, we have kids to have a meaningful relationship with them and they uh, with us as well. Uh, a good example of how this works is uh, from the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And in the 40s, he wrote a series of lectures called Existentialism as a Humanism. And in one of the lectures, Sartre talks about a penknife. Now, we don't really use penknives anymore, but that's, that's that thing that can open up an envelope so you don't have to do it with your hands. So let me contemporize the, uh, the analogy that Sartre gives. Instead of a penknife, let's imagine a smartphone. So imagine you make a smartphone and you design it, you create it. And so you tell the smartphone, can you send a text to my friend? And because the smartphone is so smart, the smartphone says, no. And you say, what are you talking about? And the smartphone says, no, I don't want to send the text. And so you say, what are you talking about? That's why I made you send the text. And the smartphone says, no, I, I just want to be a backup dancer for Beyonce. And so you, <laughs> what? You don't even have legs. How are you going to do that? That's not why you were made, and that's not how you were made. And when you think about who you are, why you're made, how you're made, the reason why you're made is to have a meaningful relationship with God. 
because that's the way that we're designed, and out of the overflow of his love, he made us. Now, I am making a big, big presupposition, and the presupposition is that God is real and God exists, and I understand that not everyone believes that God exists, and I'm reminded of a uh, debate I was watching uh, not too long ago between the famous uh, skeptical Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins, a debate that he had with John Lennox, who's a mathematics professor at the London School of Economics, uh, in a debate that they called the God Delusion. I wanted to read an excerpt from, for you from Dawkins uh, in that debate that he had. Uh, and Dawkins says, when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be, what it is, you are naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something. I feel this. I recognize that other scientists, such as Carl Sagan, uh, feel this. Einstein felt it. All of us share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexity of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos of geological time. And it's tempting to translate that feeling of awe and worship into a desire to worship some particular thing, a person, an agent. You want to attribute it to a maker, to a creator. What science has achieved is an emancipation from that impulse to attribute these to a creator. And I think what Dawkins is um, unnecessarily doing, in my opinion, is he's putting a sharp wedge between science and religion. And I don't think you have to do that. To be honest with you, I think that the two, science and religion, can perfectly cohabitate with one another without being antithetical to each other. The other thing that's so interesting to me about this quote is the words, the language that Dawkins uses. He uses the word feel, desire. Einstein felt this. Sagan felt this. And what C.S. Lewis, another Oxford Don, would say is that when you think about your feelings, your desires, your longings, they really point to something. So for example, if you're thirsty, you have this feeling of thirst, there's such a thing as water that can quench it. If you feel hungry, there's such a thing as food that can satisfy your hunger. If you have sexual desires, there's such a thing as sex that can satisfy that. If you desire a companionship, there's such a thing as friends, family, marriage that can satisfy that. And so what Lewis would say is that your feelings, your yearnings, your longings, they all really point to a real reality that can satisfy those things. And I would argue that if there is one thing that all of us in this room and the whole world desires more than anything else, more than food, water, and shelter, what we all desire is rescue. And here's what I mean. Uh, my wife Hannah and I, we finally saw Avengers, and uh, I'm not going to ruin the movie for you, okay? But you do know that the good guys are going to win, right? The bad guys are going to lose. And I remember sitting in the theater, and the good guys were winning. People were literally applauding. I mean, that is how happy they were that the good guys were winning and the bad guys were losing. Now imagine this. Imagine if the bad guys actually won and the good guys lost, and guess what? There's no sequel. This is the end game. This is the final, final movie. How would that sit with you? You probably wouldn't like it. You feel unsettled. Why isn't there gonna be a sequel? It can't end like this, and rightly so. There's something about us that wants a happy ending, not a sad ending. We don't like tragedy. We, would like, we like what Shakespeare would refer to as a divine comedy, right? So we want a happy ending. Now think about your own lives. In a world that is completely devoid of God, there is no rescue for you. How does your movie end? It doesn't end with a happy ending. 
All the people you love, you will never see them again. Your entire identity, forgotten, vanished, you will be obliterated forever and no one will ever remember you. And now that is consistent within a secular worldview. You will be forgotten. You will never be with your loved ones ever again. That's it. Your life, nothing more than a blip on the radar. Now, if, if, we, wouldn't, if we would feel unsettled if the Avengers movie ended on a wrong note, why wouldn't you feel unsettled with the way that your life ends if it were to end this way? on a sad note. But as you think about Christianity, I want you to think about carefully who the person of Jesus is. And Jesus, throughout his life, he made four audacious claims. The first is this, I've always existed. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived 2,000 years before him. How can he say that before he was, I am? What he's saying is that he's always existed. In other words, he's our creator. The second thing that he did is he never refused worship. When a woman broke an alabaster jar worth of uh, one year's worth of perfume, a salary, onto his feet, he didn't refuse it. He took it. No other founder of any major religion ever took and received worship. Jesus did. He never denied it. The third thing that he did is that he said he had the power to forgive sins and give everlasting life because he died on the cross and he exploded out of the grave and he can give that to you as well, meaning that he's not only our creator, he's God because he didn't refuse worship, but thirdly, he's our savior. And number four, the fate of your destiny depends on your relationship with him. Now, these are four very audacious claims. And the reason why we're gathered here, why we do the call to worship is found in verse one. And so if you take a look at verse 1, it says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. In other words, he's not just our creator, he's also our savior. He's not just, we're not just creation, but he is also our salvation. That's why we're gathered here to uh, worship God on this day. And when you take a look at this psalm, it can be divided into two distinct parts. The first part is the call to worship, but when you take a look at the second part, verses seven through uh, 11, it's talking about the Exodus uh, story again. And in the Exodus story, as I mentioned before, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God miraculously delivers them out of bondage of slavery, across the Red Sea, uh, they see some awesome miracles, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. They see some amazing, amazing things. And yet when you read verses 8 through 11, it says this. They hardened their hearts. They continually tested God. They continually tried God. They hardened their hearts, even though they saw these miraculous things. And so at the very end in verse 11, it says this. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And the word rest that is used here is a sort of all-encompassing rest. A rest from our weariness, our burdens, our anxieties, our depression, our guilt, our shame, and most of all, our sin. Uh, the North African theologian Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. The only place where we can tr truly find ultimate rest is in the person of Jesus alone. Until then, you are still restless. Now, what does that look like? It means that you're still out there 
running the rat race. Because if you don't find your ultimate rest in him, you know what? It's really based upon you to find it yourself. In other words, you have to run out there in that rat race to justify your existence. Isn't this one of the reasons why some of us work so tirelessly to justify our existence? Isn't this the reason why we're all in the nasty habit of sizing ourselves against other people, constantly playing the comparison game in order to validate my worth and my existence and my, my uh, justification for my life? You will never experience rest when you're out there running that race. It is only in the person of Jesus Christ and in the gospel that you can truly experience rest. Because you know what Jesus does? And you should, this is something that you should experience every Sunday when you come to church. He takes off the 100-pound backpack you're wearing, and he puts it on his shoulders. That 100-pound backpack is your sin, your anxieties, your, your stress, whatever you're going through. He takes that bag off, your guilt and shame, he places it on himself so that you're lighter. Every Sunday, you should feel lighter because someone else took on your burdens in your place so that you can experience uh, the rest that uh, you need. Now, lastly, we talked about what it is, talked about why we do it, because he's worthy. Now, how do we uh, participate in the call uh, to worship? Well, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the Israelites miraculously are delivered from slavery and they cross the Red Sea into the wilderness. And as I mentioned before, they hardened their hearts, even though they had seen all that. And the fact that the Israelites hardened their hearts after they saw the sea divide into two walls is astounding to me. Now, you might say, how could they forget after seeing something like that? And to be honest, when we take a look at what their lives are, it is a mirror of what our own lives are. Because we have seen something far greater than the parting of the Red Sea, and that is the cross and the empty tomb. And yet we are prone to forget. The song that we're going to sing after the sermon is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There are two lines in that song that I really like, but it is an indictment on who we are. And it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are by nature wandering sheep. And so one of the important things about Sunday worship then, the reason why we gather here on a weekly basis, not a monthly or yearly basis, the reason why it's so important to come on a weekly basis is to remember who he is so that we don't wander off from the sheepfold, so that we don't fall astray. Because once you stop coming, that lifestyle, it becomes a norm, and it quickly becomes easy to stop coming. And when you stop coming, your heart will not get softer towards God. Your heart will get a lot harder, trust me. That's why this worship service is so important. But it's not only enough just to show up, but when we do show up, we have to engage with him. In the Gospel of Matthew, God says, these people, they, come, they draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, so far from me. In vain do they worship me. Just, be, just because you come doesn't mean that you can cross off that checklist. It means that as we come, the disposition of our hearts must be one in which we obey the first commandment, and that is to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. Our emotions, our will, and our intellect must be fully engaged with Him. And when I say that that is how we worship God, I don't mean that that's, that's what we do when we sing, uh, because for whatever reason in uh, uh, modern Christianity, uh, singing has sort of hijacked the word worship. 
But worship really begins with our call to worship all the way down to the benediction. When we give offering, that's worship. When we're listening to our sermon, that's worship. When we participate in confession of sins, that's worship. All of this uh, is worship. And so we must be engaged with him, not disengaged, full-hearted, not half-hearted. And I want to close with you, uh, close uh, with one last story about the Avengers again, and don't worry, I'm not going to give away the movie. But uh, we went, we had a three o'clock showing uh, last Sunday. And so after the second service, uh, I went back home, got changed, and uh, we were running a little bit late. And so uh, Hannah and I, we were speed walking to the theater and uh, we were about five minutes too late, and um, thankfully we had assigned seating, otherwise we wouldn't because that theater was packed. Evidently, everyone had gotten there way early, way on time. Everyone already had their bucket of popcorn, their large Diet Coke. Everyone already emptied their bladder because everyone knows it's a three-hour movie. Everyone was prepared, ready to go, ready to cheer for a fictional movie with fictional heroes saving fictional people. Why are we gathered here? This is about a real story, real hero, real people. So how is it that we can come late to this show, the gospel, the greatest story uh, that is ever told. You know, when it comes to punctuality, sometimes we think that punctuality is a virtue for people without a life. They're not as important or as busy as I am. But you know what? Punctuality is a virtue for people that are reliable, dependable, trustworthy. And last I checked, all of us want to be considered reliable, dependable, trustworthy. I would say that being tardy, and I'm not just talking about once in a while, life happens, right? Trains get delayed, kids throw up, stuff happens. But I'm talking about perpetual tardiness. Perpetual tardiness is a virtue for those that are not reliable, not dependable, not trustworthy, not faithful. You know what you're saying when you're perpetually tardy? My time is more important than your time. Now apply that to our Sunday service. And you might be thinking that I'm talking about God. And I am, but I'm not only talking about God, but I'm also talking about us. Because when you read this psalm, it says, come let us worship. It doesn't say, come let me worship. And what, I, what I'm saying here is this, without you coming, there is no us. This is a communal gathering. And so somehow we have to flip the switch where we think the mentality is, if I just catch the sermon, that's good enough for me. Because if you're doing that, the liturgy of our culture is discipling you to being a consumer uh, when it comes to church and to having an individualistic mindset. This is a communal gathering, not an individual one. And the liturgy that we are shaped by is from the word of God, not from our culture. And this is why our Sunday worship services are so important. Um, several years ago, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine. And the reason why I say that this person is a good friend of mine is because we have a lot of relationship capital, okay? So I can sort of be real and upfront, okay? I don't have to talk PC with them at all. 
And so they said they don't like afternoon services or evening services. They much prefer early morning services. And the reason for that is if they go to an afternoon service or an evening service, it sort of ruins their day. And I politely said, I didn't know today was your day. Today is the Lord's day. And for just one hour a week, he wants you and he wants to engage with you. How can we not give him that one hour on this day with his people? Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, think about the language of uh, this psalm, bowing down, kneeling, um, there's a lot of expressive emotion, and we realize that um, uh, as we continue our worship service, um, that's what you want. You don't want just half of us, you want all of us. And so help us to engage with you as best as possible as we give of our offering, as we sing our songs, as we receive the benediction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.